0: Welcome to the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green, and I'm so grateful that you joined us today. Today's episode is a discussion with Yong Zhao, who is a professor in the School of Education at the University of Kansas and a professor in educational leadership at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education right here in Australia. Yong has received numerous awards, including the Early Career Award from the American Educational Research Association, and the Distinguished Achievement Award in Professional Development from the Association of Educational Publishers. He has been recognised as one of the world's most influential educational scholars and thinkers. In this episode, we covered a lot of ground, including his failure as a Chinese farmer and how this changed his life, the implementation of outdated pedagogy, the necessity for schools to focus on creativity and innovation, and the lessons that all schools must learn from the COVID-19 global pandemic. I left this interview feeling so inspired about the amazing work that as educators do every day. I hope that you find it as inspirational as I did. are welcome uh, to the podcast. Thank you so much for uh, for taking the time. Where um, are you calling from in the world?
1: Well, I'm now in. Oregon in the United States right now, so this is an interesting time.
0: Fantastic. I noticed that you have the University of Melbourne logo uh, in the corner of your screen. Um, I am a proud alumni of the University of Melbourne. Um, it's a, a wonderful learning institution. I understand you've spent a fair bit of time down there.
1: Yeah, I have, uh, you know, split my time between the University of Melbourne and the University of Kansas. So each year, I'm just half and half. I'm working in essence for two universities. So I'm glad you are a graduate of uh, Melbourne.
0: Yeah, it's wonderful. It's, um, uh, it was hugely transformative in my educational journey. I did the Masters of Instructional Leadership. Um, I was there for about four years. Uh, the Masters should have taken two years, but uh, you have children and things happen, and so things take a little longer than expected. But um, look, let's, let's get into it. I'm noticing you're drinking coffee. What is your coffee order? Well, I just go
1: get this cheap coffee that's like three pounds of coffee and uh, so just make it. I think uh, we're not like um, the Aussies, you know, the Australians are much more serious about the coffee. You know, uh, when I'm in Australia, I drink uh, the flat white. Yeah,
0: especially down in Melbourne. Uh, They're quite, yeah, exactly, uh, quite, yeah. quite serious about coffee. Um, what item is still on your bucket list that you have not achieved?
1: you know uh it's a very interesting thing matt when you ask that question i think in my life i seldom make a goal so there's no bucket list for me i that's why i'm generally very happy um i always count what i have achieved as something well that's nice it's you know so uh you know there's more books to write there's more writings to do there's more people to meet you know there's a lot of new things but uh, I'm more of a Taoist in that regard to say, whatever comes, you take the best out of it. And, you know, you have a general goal to say, you know, we want to make the world a better place.
0: Yeah, look what a fantastic approach for someone that is so um, acclaimed like yourself. I find that surprising that you uh, don't have a whole uh, list of to-do lists and things. All that well, kind
1: of I never thing. had a chance to do that. I think a lot of people uh, have a, we set goals, we achieve, because you know, I grew up in a tiny little village in China. There's not many resources to support, so I kind of learned to treat what you've achieved as something you've achieved. Be very happy about that and then find more things to do. I think that's what human beings should be. You know, I think sometimes setting a goal, you know, maybe in the western psychology, it helps you to drive you to do certain things. But a lot of times it becomes a reason for misery, you know, like, you know, yeah. oh, I haven't achieved this. I haven't achieved that. But I think everything we have achieved should be celebrated.
0: Fantastic. What a what a wonderful approach. Uh, what is your favorite book and why? And it doesn't have to be uh, one to do with education, although it may well be.
1: Well, I've uh, just started reading this book, uh, The Homo Deus. It's a, it's a fabulous book, uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, yeah I can, I can show you this. again
0: okay, it's yeah. by the author of oh, Sabins, we'll it, it? Yeah.
1: yeah it is a, a fabulous book about contemplating about the future by a historian who wrote the Sapiens about human uh, history. Yeah. I think uh, uh, this is uh, raises some really interesting questions to me because it has um talked about what's the future agenda for humanity for humanity mm-hmm. because the, you know the the writer says the humanity has been dealing with uh, Three things, you know, about poverty, plague, and war. You know, we used to, Mm a lot of people die from famine, from, uh, you know, starvation. A lot of people die from plagues. A lot of people die from wars. But today, human society has really somehow conquered those in general. You know, we still have people who are starving. We still have minor, small-scale wars, and we still have the, the COVID pandemic. But compared to 100 years ago, We've changed that. So what's next? So that's really actually interesting to me. What's next about um, immortality? Is that human beings wants to drive for never die? Is it about forever happiness? You know, that's actually a fascinating way to think about the broader human fate.
0: Yeah, and I think as well that would obviously keep so many things in perspective because um, we are we have the privilege of getting to do what we do right now, um, and we only have a really short time on this earth. So, what a great reminder that we uh, have a role to play to really make a difference, especially in the lives of those that we teach, because it's such a life is such a fleeting thing. Um, is uh, what do you do on your days off i mean you seem to have written more books than i can count and more articles and more publications but but what do you do uh, to relax and to and to put your feet up you know uh, do you... i don't think
1: i ever treat anything as um and I, I don't need to relax I, I think you know i read i write i talk to a lot of people i offer presentations webinars i join different meetings you know uh it's it's interesting day actually uh i don't you know i'm a very boring person i don't really have any other things that actually interest me like uh, i don't sing i don't even listen to music i don't play sports i'm very bad at sports i don't feel like i need anything if anything you know i just take a walk uh you know that's just uh uh you know i've never had a university-wise i've never had a sabbatical after working for so many years i just feel like uh I'm very fortunate to live a life that, uh, work is pleasure. Pleasure is work. You know, you can see I work really, literally seven days a week. Uh, I work, uh, really from early on to go to sleep, but at the same time, it's also makes me feel good. You know, it's uh, so I I don't have anything extra, you know, just people were surprised. How come you don't do that as well? You know, no, I, I think, uh, I, I live from the best life. I'm very fortunate. So I'm very thankful Fantastic. for that.
0: Fantastic. So take us, uh, Jung, take us all the way back to the beginning. What were you like at school? And, and would you mind spending um, a couple of minutes just unpacking your story of your failure as a Chinese farmer, which I thought was hilarious when I, when I read it? Well,
1: I, I think that's, um, that's a really important message in my mind is that, uh, you know, I grew up and uh, uh, in a village in the Sichuan province in China, which is Southwest part of it. And when I was growing up, you know, China was going through some really, really bad times. The cultural revolution, all schools were closed. The countryside, when people were starving in my village, I saw people starving in my village, but then you know, I was, um, I mean, we, we we did not have enough food each year, you know, but for one thing, um, that I was not good is I was not good at doing any of the farm work. Uh, I did not really try very hard. And I was the, uh, the only son at that time I had a brother 10 years later, but you know, uh, at that time was, um, was tough. So, um, that is where I started going to school. The school was started not as a pathway to the future, but 1970s. So, uh, uh, my father said, "You know, Randy, why don't you go to school?" But going to school was not a fashionable; was not required by law. You know, just but I said, "Okay, sure." And once I was in school, I really began to find my own place. I was good at reading. The, don't treat that school as any of your schools, Matt. It, it's uh, it's not real school. It's like one teacher with a group of kids of different ages. You know, you can call it multi-age grouping. There was no textbook. you Just you know, yeah. but it's a it's a sanctuary. It's a place that I was being able to go away so that's a strong message is that um, what you are not good at should not define you yeah. i think that's why in education we have a make a mistake we always define our children by what they are not good at if you look at the plan assessment you're assessing students you know no, you're not good at this then you're no good They we keep remediation don't keep working on what people are not good at yeah. or not interested in work on something more important.
0: Yeah, look, I, I think that's really, 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 really important. And we you talk a lot about that in terms of assessment. And um, especially um, uh, you mentioned um, in your most recent book, the your belief in the ability, f- sorry, the, for, sorry, let me rephrase that. You mentioned a re- recent book about how you believe that China didn't engage um, in the industrial revolution because Um, uh, for a number of reasons and and would you mind maybe unpacking um, some of those and why you think it's so important to um, to really take the time to find out what our students are good at and you you shared a really interesting story about you believe that Einstein would not have been uh, discovered if he was born uh, in China during the period that you were discussing so how important is it to really identify some of our students strengths?
1: Well I think you know the um, the first thing is that um, You know, most people following the industrial model of education, it's been going on for a hundred years, over a hundred years, and people really believe that's the model to make your children successful. So we make our children comply to schools to say, you got to be well in this subject, that subject, eventually you'll result in an APLIN score in an ATAR score. So you become successful and that may be right, but, Today, I think we have come to a different time. That's, you have to believe every child has unique, unique talent and unique passions. And that uniqueness can be valuable in the future if very well nourished and cultivated. Yeah. I think it's, it's a huge mistake for parents and teachers to just believe the children are going to be judged by existing system. I don't really, that's why I'm not really a big fan of any assessment. You cannot really judge a person's future, you know, when they're year one, one year old, two year olds or in, in younger age. I think it is our job to identify what the child is talented with and what this child is passionate about and help them build a knowledge base, a skills base to become unique individuals. That's what I call rich for greatness. If you become great and unique, and then you learn that you have to make use of your greatness it's like the positive psychologist you know kept talking about use your virtual use your signature strength and virtues to create value for others then you will become successful i don't think that belief is shared by anybody you know definitely like steve jobs probably wouldn't survive in china or in singapore and south korea you know all those things you know so it would not be einstein because now we but we need to believe Every child actually has that unique capacity. You know, in a traditional society, we're only allowed a few people to thrive, but in the future, every child can. And plus, you know, when you are teaching, who are you to say you got 25 kids, which one of them is not going to become a great person? We shouldn't have that expectation, but then we use our school curriculum to control our students because our school curriculum only selects those who thrive on them but unfortunately the school curriculum does not give our children much that's why you say the school curriculum you get a good at our school do they predict children's future we, we need a lot more great exceptional people but now we're not doing that because we control them we why suppress
0: you, them um, absolutely i mean i couldn't agree more why do you think though um that schools continue to uh, implement a pedagogy that is outdated and um, we understand that it doesn't work. So what, why do you think schools continue to do that? And I don't know you're speaking generally, uh, but in your experience, why do we continue? Well, I think that there are
1: many, many reasons, Matt. You know, one of the reasons is that uh, um, the society has created a, a cultural icon called schooling. And they wanted to go like that, you know? So we believe a school is one house, how many teachers, you know, with that, and all this class bells. or if you change that, people will not think it's school. And the, the, the public society say, well, that's not school. I don't like that. So, so they're looking for grades, assessment, a classroom with so many people, and my kid will go there. That's why you look at COVID has caused so much trouble. Hmm. Second thing is there's a lot of interest. Lots of people make a living by interacting with the existing school. You got the, you got Akara, you know, you got ATSO, you got the school management system, you got the principals, you have the textbook publishers, you have the after-school operators. You, you, just imagine everybody has been benefiting from strengthening the school, make the school more like school, not by breaking it apart. And a lot of people's, you know, life depends on it. So they, they wouldn't want any necessary change. You know, you know th- that's another thing. And of course, you know, a- another issue is that uh, um, we've been building a school for the last hundred years. If you want to get rid of something that's hundred years, that's very challenging. Yeah. That's very challenging. So there are too many reasons for us not to change despite the general recognition that schools need to change so you have this conflict between reality and uh, the wishes.
0: Yeah really interesting so in in your opinion then how do we begin to um, uh, develop and and enhance these right brain thinking skills with our students Um, because it seems Creativity seems quite messy and hard to pin down, but uh, how would you suggest that we begin to start to make a shift into that direction?
1: Well, I think, you know uh, Human beings are creative, that's for sure, but then how do you make them more creative and creative for ethical reasons? You You can be creative, just be destructive, you know, you can be but creative for good things. So Schools, you know, creativity. I'm not a big fan of so-called I can train you to be more creative. Creativity courses, creative, you know, programs. It's not that, you know, human beings are creative. We are, we want to, we desire to make different things. Look at your own child. They're young, they're creative all the time. The only most of the things we tell young children before the age threes, don't do that. If each cat this, don't do that. Don't. we're controlling them. Yeah. So what, what, what it is supposed to do is to, to create environment that supports the development of creativity that enables them to think about what's ethical creativity. If you want to create something, what are you creating? It could be art, stem, solutions, all those things. So in my mind, we need to change the school teaching from what I call product oriented. From year one on, we need to ask students to identify problems okay. and to solve the problem. All learning should be purposeful and intentional. Whatever children, they said, oh, I want to solve that problem. If they can clearly identify the problem and then try to solve the problem, when they're solving the problem they're bringing a lot of knowledge they're learning a lot of skills they're interacting with all kinds of people then they will do that if we have many many cycles of that because right now you know a lot of teaching is just they call just in case teaching you know your this just in case you might needed in second grade you know yeah. then you all or just to be ready you know you you, you learn this is first grade so you can be ready for second grade and then you mm-hmm. can re- be ready, you know, that readiness mindset drives this, but yeah. we need to change that to say, we need to solve problems. Yeah. When you're solving that problem, you're creating value for other people, you mm-hmm. know, in an ethical way. So I actually think uh, schools need needs to relax from trying to teach children something into supporting their development of that. Mm-hmm. And that's how creativity can be
0: cultivated yeah absolutely, and you write extensively about this, and for those people that are listening, I encourage them to to please go through your blog or your books that they really are quite incredible and quite challenging and um young are you um optimistic that schools can make this change um what's what's your views on on that
1: well, I think schools can make the change, but it's, you know, and I've seen a lot of schools making the changes anyway. I've, I've seen, I've worked with many different schools, but, but schools, a lot of schools may not be able to make the change either. You know, we have a lot of schools. So if you talk generically, yes, schools can, can they do it? Yes, they can. They control the curriculum, they have the pedagogy, they have the teachers, they have the students, and they are the de facto agency. They should be making the change, and some schools have been making the changes. But schools also confront the big issues of they're in the system. You know, when you are in the system, it's very hard to change. You know, in, in any school, you know, because like in Australia, I talk to a lot of school principals. The first thing they talk about, what about mapland? What about a, you know the state uh, uh, curriculum? What about this? There's a lot of things that drag them down. When we need a clean transformation we are dealing with efforts of improvement so that is uh, actually very challenging uh so that's why i've been working with schools i've encouraged them make the change small small and small serve a few students so this is why i'm when people talk about let's improve our teachers do a lot of pd let's uh let's change our curriculum let's do all of those possibilities and but i was say we cannot yeah. wait to do that yeah we have millions of children in our schools millions of children yeah. and their students they're they're there they're wasted they're disengaged they're not happy we cannot wait for you to improve your teachers in 25 years you know like that's why you know we've seen a lot of schools doing this you cannot do that you know we have to take actions. Schools, man, can make the change. But I would like to say more schools doing that now.
0: Yeah, look, it's really, um, as, a, as an educator and as a parent, I, I find what you're saying is so challenging because it makes me wonder how many, uh, how much uh, latent potential is lying in schools that is yet to be discovered um, because our system um, maybe doesn't create the, uh, the opportunities to cultivate that. And it, it's really, it makes me wonder how many how many students are sitting in our classrooms right now that are waiting for that opportunity and have been told that they are not particularly good at something Um, and I find that incredibly challenging. I mean you you touched on um, uh, the impact of NAPLAN, it's obviously a hugely uh, political issue over here and and quite interestingly um, this year with COVID uh, we haven't had NAPLAN. Um, Are you uh, what do you think COVID, the COVID nineteen pandemic has taught us about education, and are you confident that we can move forward with changes as a result of that?
1: Well, I was just actually reading a, a, a report about Naplan. It was really interesting. So uh, I'm not going to comment more on Naplan right now. But yeah. I think you ask a very important question to say what 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 can COVID do and what has it done? You know, one thing we know. Right now, actually, look at South South Australia has a lockdown now. You know, just mm-hmm. just changed. just uh, Melbourne has had a long time of lockdown. America, in you know, New York just closed its schools. So it has done one thing. It played games with education. It's a uh, and education. Over ninety-five percent of global schools have been closed for a long time or short term you know, or or can be closed multiple times. It has done one thing. I think it has forced all schools globally to deal with a situation of no schooling when schools are not there well, how are they offering sco- schools and surprisingly many schools have come up with some solutions for good or for bad they have come up with some solutions so that gives me hope that uh, when pressured schools can change whether the change is good or bad or sufficient we don't know so that's that says oh yes schools can change but then look at uh, China and other countries that have returned to school called normalcy, and the change disappeared. That is, uh, you know, the, the changes have disappeared. So the changes were made as a way to deal with the emergency, not as long term. Unlike business, you look at business like a Google, like Facebook, like Twitter, they are rethinking about their office they are letting their people stay home for a long time, Amazon, forever. Actually, they're rethinking about how to work. I don't think education has done that. You know, education has not done to say, what if we rethink about our schooling? We could. You know, you, you, we, what if we treat like online learning as part of our learning? Then you expand the school day beyond your school hours. And what if we think about, you know, what I call um, um, product-oriented learning as the goal? that our children will learn differently. What we think about, we organize students in very, across different ages, in smaller learning communities. What if we think about connecting our students and getting them in, involved in massive projects globally? You know, we still think we're only our students, we're doing this then. So COVID could have done a lot, but I don't think many schools have taken COVID as an opportunity a lot of them are treated as an emergency that we have to deal with, and once we deal with, if we, if it's gone, then all changes are gone. That is sad.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Sounds like such a, uh, such a great opportunity to ask some of those fundamental questions around um, education, and, and and my my hope and my wish is that um, some good really comes out of this, that it, that educators are are uh, um, given the opportunity to ask some of these really fundamental questions. I mean, you, you, you touched on so many points there. Um, I, I just wanted to briefly touch on or talk about creativity and how we assess that. Um, because you argue, uh, obviously, you write extensively about um, uh, right brain thinking and also um, uh, STEM competencies. And, and I just wondered if you could spend a few minutes unpacking how we assess these competencies and what your what your views on that are.
1: Well, I think uh, Matt is. Uh, it has really to do with um, the purpose of assessment. There are so many reasons for assessing, You know, you have assessment for to see is there a collective creativity that we want to assess. Let's like PISA is trying to assess creativity mm-hmm. in that angle. You know, does is Australia do? I mean, are Australian students more creative than Chinese students? I think it's nonsense. You know, actually th- that kind of assessment. So, so you really cannot have one creativity score for all australian students because creativity are so diverse and so different but then you have assessment towards for example you know are you making improvement you know for teaching purposes i think you can we are actually trying to create some assessment like that but but that assessment would, would be personal and authentic and very specific you would know, only students will do tasks they're interested in tasks that would indicate improvement, but also creativity is combined with uh, not only are you creative, but also do you want to be creative? You know, those are two questions. Can you do it? Do you want to do it? The cognitive and non-cognitive, but also you can assess creativity based on what they've created, an essay, a piece of music, or you can create, assess their creative capacity. Are you able to do it? You know, or oh, you can assess the creative process. Do you believe you are creative? It's creative, creativity, self-efficacy. So I think this is a very long process. I don't think we have right now any creativity assessment that does all of those things. However, you know, um, people like uh, Ron Beghetto who's done creative assessment very well and has been assessing the creative process. You want to support students in driving. Their change, you know, so so I don't think right now we have good creativity assessment, and we want to be very careful in trying to apply a generic assessment to all students.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a that's a really really great point, and and you youth. So. You've, so it, my, my next question, what you've pretty much answered it, says, uh, should we use international comparative assessments to determine people's creative competencies? But I imagine there's all sorts of issues with that. Um, what are we assessing? How do we assess it? And so on and so forth. And I, I think that's a really great point. Um, and there's so much work, I think, to do uh, in the field of actually assessing creativity. I think it's really wonderful. Um, I, I just wanted to touch really quickly on a point that you raised before about uh, kids and being innately creative. I have two little girls who are currently currently sleeping um, and no one needs to teach them to be creative. I've spent most of my life working in uh, kindergarten classrooms and they are innately creative. And I think what, what, what seems quite sad is that as you progress through the years of schooling, you seem to become less creative or less able to take risks, um, which I think is, uh, uh, do. You, is that the case, do you think, in your experience teaching or looking at schools across the world?
1: I'm sure your kids will be extremely creative because you are the one person that are supporting that because creativity really comes from openness yeah. to new experiences. Yeah. Yeah. If you involve ch- children, expose them to new experiences, if they are not discouraged from experiencing new experiences, creating new ideas, they are going to become quite creative in different places. I think the danger is that a lot of people use the term creativity and they think That developing creativity courses. I, I mean, I, you know, let me, let me just say this is, yeah, that's not going to work. And a lot of people, honestly, if they're really extremely creative people, they would not be in education doing these courses. You know, I'm not just, you know, I'm just, uh, you know, just forget about it. You know, it's, uh, you may be able to improve a little bit is, oh, let me measure this after three weeks, they've better, but are they really creative genuinely in lifelong in their profession? You know, that's, very, that's a very long story. You want a culture that endorses creativity, endorses new experiences. You want children to be confident, self-efficacious about their ability to create. You want children to aim at solving problems in innovative ways. You want people to be able to live in the unknown and the uncertainty. Those all involve creativity.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and we've. I think that, that's such a wonderful. So many wonderful points you've raised there, and and um, if you could start again hypothetically, and build an education system from the ground up, what would be some of its essential features? I know we've touched on a few of those points, but just imagine you could hit reset and start again. What would be some of those essential things that you would um, include?
1: Well, I think in the first then the curriculum. Yeah. Every school offers a curriculum for students.
0: Yeah.
1: I would like to say a curriculum of composed of at least three parts. It could be multiple parts. You know, you have to, they have the government, national or state government, they have the rights to create curriculum. They are spending tax, tax dollars to funding education. And plus, as a society, we want people to have some very basic, common knowledge and skills. Yeah. So that's the national curriculum, This called ACARA, you know, and ACARA comes with the Australian curriculum, but that should be small part, so that should be including whatever the society values, for example, literacy and numeracy, social values, how the Australian government functions, so that's very basic, so that's the floor expectation. Second thing, every school, every kindergarten should have its own curriculum, maybe another Thirty percent. That is that represents the local culture, your community, your local state, whatever you value. So you can combine those, you may have sixty percent. That's the basic of all what makes you an Australian. You know, right? Right now, look at uh, a car. I mean, the, the the program, Australian curriculum, confuses both. You confuse the floor expectation. And you think it's gonna be the ceiling expectation. The ceiling doesn't work like that. So what makes a person successful is the next 40%. The 40% will be personalized curriculum where you can learn based on your interest, based on your passion. You can learn from your teacher. You can learn from your community. You can bring the courses online. So that will be a big change. Secondly, I think you will change teachers and teaching from uh, teaching you something to support you to learn something. That's a big difference. Every teacher should be focused on the student as a person rather than focusing on the content they have to teach. And the third one is the the school environment. The school environment should be owned by the student, but also the school environment should be global. You may have a physical place, but as you know, even in kindergarten, You know, you can get children to go to museums, go to field museums. They can be chatting with people from other countries. That's global, that's already happening. So that's the kind of few things, you know, we can get started with.
0: Yeah, I think that that sounds like that's a a really great example, uh, specifically about giving schools that autonomy to be able to decide what they would like to do Um, and um, having something which is flexible and relevant to their individual context and culture um i think gosh that's that's exciting i'd love to be a part of a uh, society that promotes schooling like that it sounds wonderful um if um sorry i just had a hiccup then my apologies um uh-huh. do you think um are you, are you optimistic um of the next 10 years in education do you think that we've talked briefly about the impacts of covid but do you feel like we are moving in the right direction in terms of giving students that ability to choose, giving schools autonomy um and a personalizing curriculum?
1: I, I think so. I, I'm quite positive right now. I, I mean I, I think you know right now I am um I saw a lot of people interested in what you know the idea about giving students more autonomy more yeah. space more ownership of their learning we see that a lot more schools are interested in talking about this Uh, however, I'm very aware that as I mentioned before, the system is huge and massive. So COVID is an unfortunate, fortunate thing that gave us something. And I think you will see universities, higher education changing. You are seeing business changing. You know, I think over 40, 44% of businesses will be operating online post COVID. Now that is changing a lot. You will see a lot more automation simply because human beings have become more dangerous to each other. You will see a lot more automation. You will see some miserable times of joblessness, you know, people lose jobs. So all of these forces may push a big change. Yeah. And that change is possible, you know, next 10 years. However, I do not believe systems will be leading the changes. It is people like you, Matt, will be leading the changes.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Do you... um, Obviously, predominantly the audience for this podcast is uh, new teachers and teachers that are training to be teachers. So, What advice would you give um, to early career teachers?
1: Excellent. I I think uh, for early career teachers, you have um, have a tremendous challenge. Uh, You know, first of all, you seem to have to comply with the existing curriculum, existing teaching methods in order to be allowed into the teaching because you don't have any power. You don't have control that. So you have to comply, follow that. And you also have to um, understand your students, all those things, but I would like to say the, the following. First of all, make sure you have a job. So that is, you, you, you have to do what the school wants you to do to keep a job going. But at the same time, keep in mind, the purpose of education is not to comply. So in a, as soon as possible in your school, whenever possible, create space for students. If not for all students, for some students. If you see students are not benefiting from your teaching, from your traditional way of doing things, give them something different. Give them something different. Create space. Second thing: whenever you have power, do something different. Today's students are actually different. I don't know if you're aware of two, you know children today. They're born. They're born with iPhones. They're born with YouTube. They're born with all these possibilities. So different than kids like born in the two thousand. You know, even than like you. It's so, so it's so different. I acknowledge that children are different work with them work with them that then and create new possibilities in of that and the third one is that you know i think um honestly i've been teaching for god over 30 some years in my life if i i'm not creative in my teaching i get bored so for you you need to keep that spirit going and do not rely on others to allow you to be creative you actually have space, you have your room, be creative. And creativity can keep your career going
0: much longer before you burn out. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is some um, incredible advice. And I I have one final question. It's very hard to top your response to that last question. Um, But who do you think would be a great podcast guest?
1: Well, actually talk to Ron Begato. Ron Begato would be a great one. He, he is a creativity researcher and I'll be happy to email. He He's at Arizona State University and we used to work together. We still work together. We are now co-editing a journal uh, for American Educational Research Association. Uh, he is a creativity expert. He knows creativity much more than I do. Uh, I know the school system, you know, uh, how the system might work and a little bit about creativity, but Ron Begato, B-E-G-E-T-T-O.
0: Fantastic. I will uh, look forward to getting in contact with him. But Jung, I I just wanted to thank you so much for your time. I'm sure there are plenty of things you could be doing in places that you could be today. So I appreciate you taking the time. And and I really do hope that um, our teaching audience gets something really insightful out of this interview. So thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Well, thank you. I know you got up so early. And thanks so much. And uh, take care. Have a great day.
0: Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussions today. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com and please remember to subscribe to future episodes. If you could please let me know your thoughts about our discussions today, please rate and review the episode on iTunes and share the resources with anyone that you think would find it useful. Thank you for listening. Until next time.